Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NIO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. And today, we're once again going to go to space without ever leaving the ground. Last week, we had a bit of a history lesson from Mac Evans about the beginnings of Canada's space program. We talked about the creation of the Canadian Space Agency and the negotiation of the International Treaty for what eventually became the International Space Station. Today's guest, Bill Mackey, is going to help us continue that story and learn about actually building the space station. Bill Mackey has been working in space for over 30 years. He started out at Spar Aerospace, where he worked on the design of what eventually became Canadarm2. After that, he moved to the Canadian Space Agency and became one of the very first Canadians to qualify as a robotic flight controller, allowing him to work in the Mission Control Center. Eventually, he became the mission team manager for CSA, and for 30 shuttle flights, he was the voice who gave the go for launch on behalf of the Canadian team in MCC. And that makes him a Terranaut in my books. Bill, welcome to Terranauts. Well, thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here, especially coming in after uh, Mac Evans, an icon for Canadian space. Yeah. Well, now, in the interest of full disclosure, I think we need to tell everyone right at the beginning that we have, in fact, known each other for over 20 years and that we both worked at the Johnson Space Center and that we both, in fact, worked in the robotics section when we were there, though not at the same time. Um, yes. This does present a danger that we need to manage because left to our own devices, I'm pretty sure that you and I could produce a four and a half hour episode full of NASA acronyms that no one else would understand. So I'll promise to be on my best behavior, if you will. Uh, I will, but I think I would hope that you would interject things that you uh, would add as anecdotes to uh, you know our, our discussion on uh, our events in NASA. I don't think you need to worry about that. <laughs> so, so before we get to the stories about building the space station and working at NASA and commissioning the space station arm, uh, before we get there, let's talk a little bit about your early days. How did you get into space? Well, uh, like Mac Evans started his story, uh, it was when I was a kid in school, um, uh, grade school, and uh, I was enthralled by the NASA Human Spaceflight Program. And, and of course, I uh, was around, um, old enough to be around to, to have witnessed the landing on the moon, and that inspired me to um, want to go into space, although at that time there was not much of, uh, there was no Canadian human spaceflight program, and so there was little hope for a Canadian guy to get involved in, in space um, unless there were some changes. Um, so through, through so when, that, when, when were you in high school? When was that? Uh, 70s, early 70s. 70s, okay. Yeah, so the time we were talking about with Mac where we were just really inventing the idea of a Canadian space program. Yes, exactly. And uh, so that was great. And of course, uh, notwithstanding the fact that it's how important it is that satellites will fly in under the Canadian uh, um, um, authorization, this is, it, it's, it's to get into the human spaceflight program was paramount. I think it was, it was a great opportunity for Canada to expand their program and, and uh, participate in space exploration. So uh, that, that led me to 
uh, a career, uh, education in in a, the human human engineering. Really, um, I did a master's in London, England, um, and came back and worked uh, uh, working on designing the interfaces for the operators of cranes initially, and then eventually got a job at Spar under the defense division. Um, right, and transferred over over to the space department there when there was op- just shortly after the freedom program was let to spar to develop the MSS the mission right. uh, mobile servicing system right so the mobile servicing system or, or MSS is is really the the whole uh, the you know a lot of people may not know there's a there's a base and there's an arm and there's a, a a dexterous manipulator as they call it on the end of the arm and the whole thing is the MSS right yes correct and, and it, it, it in fact uh, is attached to a mobile transporter on the International Space Station that runs up and down a track on the station uh, on the U- U.S. Uh, space system. Uh, and that, M- that MT, the mobile transport, is the United States and, uh, asset, and that'll play, play into further discussions as we have later. So you're, you're saying that we get around on the space station, but only wherever the U.S. takes us. Is that what you're saying? Well, no, not, not yes, but no. Uh, it's a hard one because because the arm. Well, we'll get into the arm details as well. But the arm has two end effectors, two hands, yeah, and, and it can therefore inchworm itself on and off of this train, this uh, this mobile transporter okay. to base points on modules of the space station to operate so, right. uh, as necessary. Okay, so so before we get too far into talking about the, the Canada Arm 2 or the space station RMS, remote manipulator system, as NASA calls it, um, we need to understand there's a there was a bit of a difference between that and the shuttle arm, right? When we made the shuttle arm, which was also made by SPAR, we, we basically made the arm and then shipped it to NASA, and then NASA basically put it on the shuttle and, and operated it from then on. Correct, and uh, so it was a contribution, as Mac Evans and uh, um, uh, mentioned, and so there was a contribution yeah. from Canada to the shuttle program, and it was one arm. It it tested well. It went, and and the asset therefore was something that was desirable for NASA for one one each for each of their shuttle program each of their shuttles. So they then contracted right. uh, Spar at the time for four more. So uh, right. our one and a half mil, or sorry, one hundred and I don't know what is it. One point two million dollar investment as an inve- as a contribution turned into a one point two billion dollar uh, return on that investment to the Canadian economy. So it was a huge investment, but we didn't own it. It was all owned by NASA. And in fact, if anybody owned that arm, I, I would say because you work there too. The guys in the robotics section uh, at at Johnson Space Center, which which was known as DF forty four, in their mail codes, um, you know they, they were the guys who effectively operated and and felt a, a lot of ownership for that arm. As far as they were concerned, it was it was their thing on the space shuttle, right? Absolutely, it was their arm. They operated it. They they only contracted Spar to come in during missions, during flight ops, to uh, support in the back room. So they provided engineering support under contract to, to NASA at NASA. Right. So, but Canada Arm 2, um, the space station RMS, the space station arm, um, Canada decided that we wanted a, a slightly, uh, well, quite a different role. We didn't want just want to deliver the arm. We actually wanted to operate it when it was on space station, right? 
Yeah, so while that was the intent, um, especially from the Mission Operations Group or the Canadian Space Agency, our obligations were to provide the arm and provide the training support. So we had a, a training program. We were building the training material. We had a simulator. We, we would train the astronauts and the flight controllers. NASA called them flight controllers. Mm-hmm. We chose to yeah. call them mission controllers, but, but they transitioned the shuttle flight control terminology into the station operation. So we had obligations to support our contribution to the International Space Station, but as far as the operations in Canada, um, the end-to-end, full-up end-to-end operation support was not really well thought out at the, at the time of the initial development. But but it was our objective to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, and so so we, but eventually we did get NASA to agree to let us do the the operations on orbit, right? At least At least NASA headquarters figured it was a good idea for international relations. Yes, it took some time to convince NASA that they um, could trust Canada to um, establish a, a uh, capability to have the commanding from Canada uh, and a whole mission control center here. It's a remote mission control center, they call it. Um, but it, it took some time and some um, uh, convincing that this would be the right. most appropriate thing for an international partner to do. Right. And, and so... For the guys who actually operated the shuttle arm, the the flight controllers in Houston, uh, having headquarters decide that a bunch of people who'd never actually sat in a mission control center um, and and allow them the opportunity to actually operate on orbit equipment, um, that was um, well, it was something that let's say they were they were not convinced of the wisdom of that to begin right. with. That, that's correct. They, they, they brought with them to the space station program the operations techniques that they had for the space shuttle program. So it was all centralized. It was something where they could meet face-to-face if there was a need to have a, a, an anomaly resolution team. There was um, the, right. the whole aspect of having a remote intelligence was, was foreign to them because they, they, were, they were brought up on the, station, on the shuttle program, rather. Well, how did you how did you end up working in the robotics section then? So what 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 happened at, at Spar after the design and development of the arm and I, my responsibility at Spar was the user interface. So we had a an issue with respect to the control aspects of it, and then there's a robotics workstation program that was brought in since Canada couldn't afford to to have a full up end to end operations of it. The contract or NASA agreed to provide the robotics workstation, and they contracted Spar Montreal to develop that capability. So I was part of that program and developing the user interface at the time for only astronauts on orbit. We were, and ground control was only a concept that we had discussed with the safety panel, but it was something that um, would, would eventually become um, a capability that we could offer. Um, but when I, after the design and development is finished, I then p- took a job with the Canadian Space Agency as one of the first four groups, uh, after, or flight controllers to move almost directly down to the Johnson Space Center to participate as a flight controller in the DF uh, group, DF-44 flight control team for the ISS um, as a Canadian contribution to the NASA f- um, mission operations director. So that's how it it was all all about space station, right? Yeah, but it, it was it was training to become a flight controller for space station. But at the time, space station wasn't flying, so so you you ended up learning um, on the job, uh, following people who were supporting the space shuttle. Yes. So then the DF forty four, our MOD in in, in, to, in total, was, was basically training folks on on the space shuttle program 
um, as it applied to what operations they would expect to see on the International Space Station program. So we, therefore, right. were, were, were trained as a flight controller on the shuttle, but we weren't authorized really to be um, certified operators or certified flight controllers for any shuttle mission. We were there for the International Space Station purposes only and only that. Right. Right. Um, so uh, how long did you do that for before we actually uh, got the second arm on orbit? Yeah, so uh, probably a few years. We helped with uh, the training program, training material for Canada, and we Canada put up their own, uh, had their own training uh, certification process, and they trained the astronauts, and then they trained the flight controllers, and we all received uh, certification, certifications from the Canadian Space Agency. We also received certifications from NASA as a flight controller. And how long I did that, geez, you're going to tax my memory, but while we were about to, uh, while we were about to put the uh, station together, uh, NASA identified a need to have a management team that oversaw the requirements and oversaw the authorization of the utilization of the of the assets that international space uh, international partners would provide. So I right. took a job while at Johnson Space Center and transitioned from a mission control team to the mission operation mission management team. So I, right. I worked for right. the program essentially uh, as a Canadian representative, and then and and um, was essentially uh, authorized by Canadian by the CSA to to be the voice of of reason and they and and implement a um, a requirement that they had to have a an engineering support team down there as part of the mission evaluation team room. So it would brought me out of mission operations into the mission management and, and engineering. Okay. Well, we won't we won't try to confuse people with with NASA's uh, structure okay. for flight control with front room, back room, MER, and and you know third line engineering support. But um, so but fast forward to it's it's I think it's around two thousand and one uh, STS one hundred anyways uh, when we launched Canada Arm two and Chris Hadfield um, and uh, and install the arm on the space station. So you were in mission control for that mission. I was in mission management there. Yes, the mission control center, and for that mission, yes, sir. And and uh, what was that day like? It was flight six A STS one hundred was um, full of intensity. It was it was tremendous. The 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 uh, emotions went high to low to just just it was amazing. It was an amazing event um, when when Chris installed the arm. Uh, it was such a proud moment to have the arm attached to the space station, or in fact, I announced that the space station was now attached to the arm. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and it was just a, it was just a memory that will, I'll never forget for sure. It, it was in- so, and it was a pretty com- complicated ballet, right? Like, like what did what did Chris actually have to do to install the arm? Yeah, it, it, he had to basically bolt the arm together. So we attached it. It came up on a strong back, a, a logistics carrier, and we had to pull it off and bend the booms uh, out because they were folded in half. We had to bolt the booms there. We had to install the latching end effectors, the two wrists on the uh, hands on the arm. Um, and then right. and, and then attach it to a base point. So it was a huge effort, EVA, uh, extra vehicular activity or spacewalk event yeah. that Chris did. Yeah. And, and NASA typically will want to do test and demonstrate 
um, technology or equipment that they launch into orbit first before its first utilization, operational utilization. In this case, sure. they could not do that. What we did in the in the in the test center at the at the Cape was to test uh, the SSRMS via simulation. So we have a simulator of the of the arms operations capabilities and it's all, all its software and all the way. So we tested only our software capabilities, but not our mechanical aspects until we got onto orbit. Right. And the first mission, that mission, we had to therefore break the rule and use the arm to to, right. to um, return the logistics carrier to the shuttle cargo bay by okay, so, so the, 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 pallet, the pallet that it came up on had to be returned to the shuttle bay and you had to use the arm that you just installed to do That's that. correct. So we didn't have a chance to commission before its first critical operations and it was like a, a huge right. event. For and, and so this is an operation where you're taking a big piece of hardware you know, metal uh, and lifting it off the space station, which is a reasonably small and fragile thing at that time, and dropping it into the payload bay of the space shuttle, which is also a spacecraft on orbit. So this this is not this this is not for the faint of heart. This is not honestly. for the faint of heart. This is a cool exercise, first of all, because the station arm, which was based on the space station, had to pick up this logistics carrier and hand it off to the shuttle arm. So the first operation... Oh, so there was a handoff. Was a handoff. Holy so cow. The first operation of the arm was uh, performed by Susan Helm and Jim Voss. Uh, and they picked up this uh, ULC and they handed it off to Chris while operating the Canada arm on the shuttle. So this, this wow. was like a, a huge event and what a successful story. Uh, well, because they, they, the first time they'd ever done a, a handoff between arms, right? Because they'd never had to. Absolutely. Before. Absolutely. Quite a historical event. Yeah, I, 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 I can imagine that mission control was full that day. Oh, it was it was amazing. It was just tremendous. And we were so delighted until we've had our first anomaly. And the, the, the whole mission went down with in, in that we had the operations of our, our arm and, and the space station master com- computers started to fail. And so we were being uh, – we were part of the investigation uh, as far as the cause of yeah. the station pro- station computers. There were three of them, and they all three of them eventually came down. So the station was, ad- was adrift, on, uh, and they were trying to do anomaly resolution and figuring that's the only configuration change to the station since uh, – Right, right. You guys were the only thing that changed. So what did you yeah, do? Well, yeah, right? you broke our system. And uh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yeah. So it was uh, quite an event, um, that whole mission. That's for sure. And and what event, do you remember what the anomaly eventually ended up yeah, being? Yeah, it was a hard drive failure on the uh, computer, on the master computers. Uh, um, and they, they were able to fix that while, while, the, while the shuttle was still docked. The shuttle was there to com- maintain attitude, essentially, if necessary. Um so right, was, right. So it didn't have anything to do with the arm, but you didn't know that until you figured it out. Yes, correct. Right, right. So, but all of that happened in Houston. So the the Canadian Mission Control Team that was running all of that was was in Houston, right? Yes. And was it all Canadians on that team, or were there American mission controllers as well? well at the most time? of the mission controllers at the time were American. So I think there was a few. There were, I think there was one. Maybe two. I forget. Actually, I was out of the mission control world there, uh, but because uh, I was in the mission management side, um, but um, it was more or less the systems. The mission controllers for station and were much like shuttle. They'll have a task person, which is the lower level trained person who does the 
um, procedure verification. And then there's a systems person who not only is that person responsible for overseeing the procedures, but also responsible for understanding the the details of the system and providing the front room controller, who in in our case is called Robo, and that person is the direct um, communication link to the flight director. Yeah, well, it'd be pretty cool to go to work every day and have people call you Robo. I have always thought absolutely. That. We had a we were we were exactly. I thought we had two choices: Roso or Robo. Well, there was no no. no oh yeah, well, that 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 was not not a hard choice, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, and and I guess it's something that people who haven't worked at MCC don't know that that literally that's your name. Yes. Like nobody knows your name is Bill. Uh, if you're Robo, you're Robo for for the entire mission. Yes. So oh, um, that's that's one of the cooler uh, uh, mission control titles, sure is, I think. Yeah. Um, so it was in Houston at the time, but eventually we did end up with a mission control center in uh, at uh, CSA headquarters in Saint Hubert, where we we can actually control the arm um, and and actually run missions or follow the mission, uh, well participate in the mission from from Canada now, right? Yeah, so it, it took a little while to convince NASA that that our um, responsibilities included the commanding control capability. Uh, there was a few. Mm. Uh, um, incidences in the in the station implementation plan that, that identified the need for a, a link to Canada. So um, I approached uh, the ground segment oper- manager and I told, showed him these requirements. And so well, shortly after that, they, they the team stepped up and, and put in T1 lines and video lines and the whole works over command and control and all the secure lines that were necessary to maintain a, a, con- a control path from CSA down to Johnson Space Center that then would send commands right. to the space station. So it took a long time, um, and it, it initially I don't think it was part of the NASA plan, but uh, we were able to insist that this was an international partner program, that the that the right. Canada arm is not a shuttle arm. It is, it is a Canadian arm, and it is not something that right. the United States is responsible for. We are responsible for our own system, albeit that they might have, paid for the control station and they might have a transport on a on the external vehicle that we ride on but the point is is that the Canada arm is Canada's and we were able to then justify the, the capability in Canada to provide the services that would be uh, allowing the our robo operators or our systems operators to send commands to the Canada right. Right. So, so do you know on any given day now with the space station up there, uh, is there, or is, is Montreal always uh, providing the support to the arm or does it go back and forth between Montreal and Houston? Well, during the, uh, it goes back and forth. I mean, they, they're, they're, Personnel assignment would would uh, you know dictate as to where where and who operates at, at any point in time. So it, it used to be a twenty four seven operations while we were um, building the space station. It's come down to now mm-hmm. the a utilization need, and so whenever the arm right. operations are, are scheduled, they would have a team uh, preparing for those arm operations, and the, and so the, the it basically having Canada, it's it's transparent now. The, as to where the person sits and communicates as far as any kind of mission operations. The, the mission management team, though, continues to operate out of the mission control center as well down there. So, our, And that's staffed by our liaison office folks. Right. So, so let's talk about the mission management team a, a little bit because there, I think there's some fascinating 
um, stuff there as well, because I mean, a lot of people don't realize that we went from space station freedom to international space station, uh, which basically meant we invited the Russians in. Right. And, and, but that all of that was happening, like certainly less than 10 years from the end of the Soviet union, probably more like five or six years from the end of the Soviet union. And, and so you literally have, uh, Russians and Americans sitting in the same room, some of whom were military, you know, fighter pilots who grew up training to shoot one another down, um, sitting in the same room trying to build literally the biggest project humankind had ever tried to build on orbit. Um, and and that was, um, but that international management team was something that you were a part of. So you you went to a lot of those meetings, right? Yes, yeah, so it was very interesting to watch the, how the United States and Russia interacted. Um, the, one of the, the key aspects of <clears throat> excuse me international programs are are the establishment and develop, development and establishment of trust. And so the, we we yeah. could see the pains and the uh, and the uh, the agonies, the stresses, and the successes when when in, in those you know one on one, face to face, even telecom communications between the two two agencies that had the most experience in space space um, uh, operations. The, the, the other yeah. members of the team were Japan and Europe. Uh, and, and we, we right. were part of the USOS, so we had no real interactions with Russia except for part of working teams, working groups that we may have been part, participating right. in. But it was mostly us watching. USOS means, for people who don't know, USOS, the, the space station, uh, certainly in the early days, had there were two halves to it, right? The part that were American and the parts that were Russian. That was the, the modification to the design when we went from freedom to international space station. So the USOS was essentially the U.S. side of the space station. That's right? correct. And then, and then it, it separate, there was a, a, a Russian module that was paid for initially by the United States called Zarya, and it was the first flight it yeah. was the first it was the link between the russian segment and the u.s segment so it's uh and and the, and the canada was part of the u.s segment um so you could essentially close the doors between russia and and uh and united states yeah that right? if, if you wanted to but but there haven't been any issues with respect to our communication efforts and our cooperation on the international space right. station despite what's going on down here on earth yeah, well, that's the thing. And, and it was kind of interesting days, too, because um, although the U.S., uh, you know, given the, what was happening in the Soviet Union and, and then Russia, the U.S. was was really footing a lot of the bill for this stuff, as you point out. But the Russians were really the people who actually had the expertise about how to live on orbit for extended periods of time. Yeah, right? so they, uh, you know, with their two Mir programs and there was a shuttle Mir program. And you know, I know you participated in that, Ian, and you probably your, your insight yeah. would be valuable in, in how, you know, NASA transitioned from those missions to, you know, working, working with, on the International Space Station program. But for all intents and purposes, the right. shuttle remained its own program and then the station remained its own program the transportation system was not part of the iss program it remained separate right. so their joint program reviews were shuttle and iss as far as us goes but the us dealing with the united with the russia was an extension of their interactions out of the mir program i believe right Right. And well, and actually, I mean, uh, you know, in some ways, the shuttle program and the station program were as much, uh, much to solitudes as any of the other international partners were. Right. They, these were not necessarily uh, programs that that had a common culture, shall we say? Yeah, the I'm not sure how much. Yes. Um, I mean, I can only speculate on on what the shuttle program people um, believed in as far as an international space station program and how 
you know, what the probability of success would be. But it was clear that they were their own entity and they, they didn't want any influence from international. They didn't want any influences from uh, international space station, perhaps. They, they, they wanted to operate right, their, right. as an autonomous uh, or a program. Well, they were kind of the senior service, and 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 um, you know the the ISS and and working with the Russians was kind of the new the new kid in town is how I remember yeah, experiencing absolutely. it. And there was the the usual tensions that you would have in any situation like that. And and I guess you know so this is the question is I mean that poses a lot of challenges. I mean you got U.S. and Russians who who literally five years before were on either side of the opposite sides of the Cold War. You got you got station. You got shuttle. Uh, we're trying to do something brand new. Um, you know, in the early days of the that international mission management team must have been been kind of kind of tough. They were very tense. They were very challenging. There were sometimes they were tense. In fact, I would I suspect they still sometimes there are still tension in certain certain when when anomalies happen or when um, right. where there were some there was one incident I recall where NASA was um, trying to uh, work with Russia with respect to a shuttle docked um, event where shuttle had its its jets still uh, its um, guidance navigation control jets still uh, active while it's docked to the space station and right. the shuttle program manager at the time objected to the um, the Russian stance that they uh, did not want these to happen and there was a, there was quite a heated conversation right. that led to uh, uh, well unhappy, right. unhappy results <laughs> um, but yeah there, there, yeah, there was yeah. definitely but, some tension but, going on but but despite all of that at the end of the day we did build space station and and today I, I suspect a lot of those tensions are 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 just something you know just historical fact not not daily life so you know I'm kind of interested to know how that how that group kind of uh, developed and, and and molded together to go from a, a bunch of uh, people with all with their own concerns to to a bunch of people who actually helped us, you know, build literally the biggest project we've ever done outside the atmosphere. Well, I, I got to claim, say it's all about the people. Um, the, I have full re- so much respect for the people that NASA have, have um, assigned to the programmatic Program positions and their their negotiating capabilities with 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 partners, they are they are tremendous. They despite the fact that there could be political issues, they are they ignore all, everything that's going on down on the ground here and work work very um, very nicely with international partners and in reaching consensus of any kind of issues that they would have. It I, it was so impressive to to be, be and I was so honored to be part of that whole mission management team to watch how. NASA and Russia dealt with each other and and came to uh, agreements and eventually became great friends. I mean, it's to me, it's it's something yes. that you wouldn't notice outside the political forums of the you know the, the newspapers. Um, it, it's just it was just tremendous a tremendous opportunity, and I'm thankful for that opportunity. Yeah, I, I I always think it's one of the great successes of Space Station is is it started out as a as as Mac pointed out it was a foreign relations uh, initiative initially um, and, and I think that that's one of been one of its big successes is I think people who haven't worked on the program really don't understand how how little the outside world intrudes on the relationships inside that program. I mean, people who work on station, astronauts who fly on station that that's where they are. They're in the International Space Station. They're not 
they're not in their own country. The stuff that's going on down on the ground doesn't doesn't really get in the way um, of working together on orbit. And I think it's actually a, an amazing testament to the power of human beings to really um, you know, really work together on something big and important when it's big uh, and important. Absolutely. And when in times of trouble where we've had, uh, or the United States has had a couple of shuttle accidents, uh, accidents, the Russia stepped, stepped up and they, they provided services that would be necessary to keep the um, station um, crewed. So to have permanent presence over 20 years in all the problems and, and troubled times we've had, I mean, it's, it's a tremendous um, uh, feat uh, for mankind to do what they've been doing. As an international um, uh, program, yeah, yeah, I think so too. And I'm really glad that um, we had a chance to talk about it today. But that's probably about all the time that we have for this episode, anyways. I, I, uh, I think maybe we'll have to talk again about some other stuff. But I'm really glad we had a chance to talk about it. I think it's a fascinating time in the history of of humankind's journey to space. And and thanks for being a guest on Terra. Well, thank you, Ian. It's been an honor and a privilege to uh, to be parting participating in this Terranaut program. Thanks again. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Terranauts. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that you can now find Terranauts on iTunes and other podcatcher apps for iOS and Android. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. If you have comments on the episode, you can email us at podcast at We read and answer all of your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space and on Facebook. Thanks again for listening and join us again next time when we'll go to space without ever leaving the planet. Talk to you then. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.